This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are learning Warren Buffett-style investing here. Deep, deep value, deeply focused, make a lot of money. (laughs) <laughs> with the lowest risk possible that Whoa. you can do in stock market investing. That there we go. Sounds like a fancy pitch from a... Sounds like an infomercial yeah, at 2 a.m. Yes, it does. Make millions, millions. With you no can't do, I risk. <laughs> with no risk whatsoever. It's impossible to lose. You can't lose a nickel. Send me only nineteen ninety five. <laughs> In cash, in for an envelope. For 36 months. <laughs> for 36 months. And 1995. Oh, my gosh. It t- that sounds terrible. And I really, we should, we should make it clear that the infomercial forgot to tell you that while this is really, truly, actually, incredibly simple, it is also hard. Yeah. It ain't easy. It ain't or, easy. It ain't easy. So if you're, you're talking to somebody and you're going, oh, you should listen to the Invested Podcast because it's so simple, you know, investing. And your friends go, ah, if it's that easy, everybody be doing it. You can tell them, yeah, it's not that easy, actually. And, and, you know, even people who know about it don't continue doing it because it takes work. It takes focus. It takes like the same kind of work as working out and having a good diet and and doing yoga and having other, in my daughter's terms, practices. Mm-hmm. How'd you like that? That's right. I like fully that? agree. I love the idea of investing as a practice. You taught me that. Oh, you know, I just finished filming my course, which is going to be about developing investing practice. Nothing to do with actually what to do with investing, because I think there's a whole experience that's being skipped over by people who are very good at this stuff naturally, but the people who like me, needed some extra help. We need to learn how to develop a practice. And so I've created this whole video course and I just finished filming it in Denver and it's so exciting. So it'll be out I'm so in, excited. Uh, I'm going to take it. As soon as you get it, You I'm should actually. It. I think you would benefit from it. That would I be would hilarious, Dad. You got to take so the benefit. course and then we'll like live tweet or we'll live podcast or something as you take the course and we'll find out yes. what you think. Yes. In fact, I'm going to have my analysts take the course. Um, we are, I mean, there's such a difference in, that nobody offers this course out there in the world that I've ever heard of, honey. So first off, kudos well, for yeah, creating I mean, it. I made it up out of my life. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, nobody thinks about that. Who's actually out investing. They don't think about it as a practice. They think about it as a career. They think about it as I want to get rich. They think about it a lot of ways, yeah. but yeah, they don't think about they it. They don't as think about it as a good addition to your life that really right. adds a lot of joy. Right. Even though. People who invest the way we do love it and they don't quit. I mean, Buffett's 89 and Munger's 95 and they just don't quit Mm -hmm. because it's so much fun to do. And I think one of the things that we're trying to bring to the world is that investing done this way, the way we teach it, 
the way Buffett teaches it, the way Munger teaches it, is actually, it, it enhances your life in such an incredible way. Yeah. And it's so much fun to do. Um, and I did not un, believe you know, that that was possible when right. we started, as you know. <laughs> right, as I know. <laughs> I was like, what the heck is this snake oil <laughs> mysteriousness? Send me well, 1995 in an in an envelope in cash. Can like, you imagine no risk. Talking about. Do you remember our early podcast episodes where you'd say something like, "Oh, it's really low risk," and I was like, "Let's talk about that for seven <laughs> hours," because there's no way that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're a believer. Well, yeah, low risk, low, low risk. risk. There's no, no such I mean, thing as no risk, and don't believe anybody no who tells as, you that. There's no risk. But there is such a thing as high returns with low risk. And, and as we've talked before, this is the, like if you were to take a, a normal investor and have them take the test that they give you for a financial advisor, they would ask you, do you want high returns in exchange for a lot more risk? Yeah. Or do you want low returns in exchange for very low risk? And you're like, and I people, don't want either of those. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want high returns with low risk. Yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. <laughs> and that's not one of the boxes you can check with a financial advisor. They will they'd be like, no, I that remember, doesn't exist. I had never heard of that question. And I went and I opened a bank account in Zurich when I moved to Switzerland. And this bank account that we have is just, it also includes like investing options. I don't use any of them, but they handed me this form and I had to fill it out. And that was one of the questions on there. And I just was like, I literally don't know how to answer this. Like I sat there for about five minutes staring at it going, how, what do I do with this question? I want none of these options. Right. And I, I just, I couldn't understand what they meant by low risk. I didn't know what they meant by high risk. I didn't know what they meant by low returns. I didn't know what they meant by high returns. And so eventually Nuno was just like, my husband was just like, check the middle one, whatever. I check don't the know. middle one. <laughs> well, I'm going to actually tell you what they mean by all these things right now. No, we're supposed to talk about stock buybacks. I know, but this will just take a minute okay. because everybody right now is going, uh, what do they mean? I don't know either. Okay, here's what here's what this comes from. It comes from efficient market theory that says that risk is volatility. That is, the more a stock moves around, the more risky it is. Therefore, if you choose the high risk button to get a high return, then your portfolio is going to be loaded with small cap stocks, meaning smaller companies that are more volatile and move around a lot more. And um, if you check the box that says very low risk, then what they're going to do is put you in you know, really stable companies and mostly a lot of bonds that don't move around at all and just give you a very low return. So that's what they mean. They mean high risk means high volatility and a stock that's going to move around a whole bunch. Now, here's the catch, is that according to modern portfolio theory, if you check the high risk box and you go for a lot of stocks that are highly volatile, you still don't beat the market. Your rate of return um, efficient market is a hypothesis. market rate yeah. of return. It's, yeah. It's crazy. Um, it's crazy. Okay. That's my little message to you all, is that the way they're doing it is nuts. It's like witch doctors beating drums, not to be culturally insensitive, and thinking they're causing the sun to come up. Okay? So these things, a stock price moving around a lot, 
doesn't say it's a risky investment. I mean, come on, Google moves around a lot. It's been pretty damn great, okay? So just get over the idea that there's some relationship between volatility and risk. There isn't. Risk is just not knowing what you're doing. That's risk. The part that annoys me about it, and the reason they ask that question is because regulations require them to, so it's very simple. It's not that these guys at the bank came up with that question. But what annoyed me about it is just that there's no description. There's no definition. There's no explanation of what they're talking about. It's just pure... Low risk, low returns. Well, I'll tell you why. It's financial pornography is why. And just like with regular pornography, I don't know it. I, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it is the classic Supreme Court statement on pornography. It's like, it's the same thing here. It's financial pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, they, and that's why the SEC is playing it, and it's absurd. Yeah, but and they you're, can you're define with it. An absurdity. And so they're handing this form to people who don't know what those things mean and and don't know enough to, you know, extrapolate everything you just said, and they're being asked to make a choice that then affects their future financial decisions. And there's actually a bunch of startups in the fintech world that are trying to combat this problem because. This is a clear problem. Everybody knows it's a problem. It's utterly ludicrous. And so they're coming up with like cool sort of apps that let you answer a lot of questions about what you would do in given situations, um, which let them determine, okay, like this person is somebody who's more on the like higher risk side, which as you said, means really just high volatility or this person is on the lower risk side. So they're trying, there's some interesting stuff out there trying to deal with it because... We're not the first people to say how dumb that is. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to some of them deal with it outside the boundaries of efficient market theory. That would be amazing. Because once you leave, the the reason efficient market theory has been so powerful in the academic community and the financial community for 40 years is it because if it were true, you could have formulas that would determine how you invest. And that's exactly precisely what they do is pretend that these formulas are true. And then they invest your money using these formulas, which is wonderful. Now we can go and figure out a balanced portfolio according to risk, which is all absolute nonsense. And what they, when you leave that world, you leave objectivity of math behind and you're stuck with a subjective evaluation of a company's business. Mm -hmm. And that simply isn't what they do. That's something just that requires that. Yeah. education and, so you, and knowledge. They're never yeah. going to leave it. I mean, I don't care what kind of fintech stuff. When a, when a fintech group figures out how to come up with an app that will do what I do or what Buffett does or what you're learning to do, you know, that'll be something. I'll, I'll run down and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people who are trying. I can tell you that. It's, a, yep. it's an interesting new world out there with AI. Yeah, I, I believe you. You know, yeah. I, I don't have any doubt about it. But having wandered off the track here, can we wander back? We could wander back. So there was something that we're talking about stock buybacks nominally. We, we and, were sort of. <laughs> and, um, and last time we got into the whole thing about about how politicians are trying to come up with regulations and, le- and law to solve issues of heinous boards and the whole thing. Um, And one of the areas that is really uh, a hot button is this area of buybacks. Yeah. That the idea, well, shall we describe what a buyback is? But first, we were talking about um, boards and the way they work last time and, Mm -hmm. and that shareholders are 
owners of the company and that oftentimes uh, CEOs, executives, and even boards themselves are worried about shareholders getting enough power, meaning really enough ownership to give them power, that then they will buy themselves essentially a seat on the board and try to come in and change the way the company is doing things. And it reminded me of when Whole Foods was going through its sort of tough years there at the end. And this private equity group came in and bought it, bought up a bunch of Whole Foods stock and got a seat on the board. And they wanted to do some not great short-term choices for that company. Right. Right. So that's a, that's a classic example of, um, you know, it can be used for good or for ill, just like anything else, right? You have a benevolent owner or you have a malevolent owner. And, um, and so I think a big reason, actually, that John Mackey sold Whole Foods was to get away from that situation where he had um, a hostile board member, essentially. And I don't think that they were really hostile. I think they were trying to make the company become more profitable because um, they were struggling. But right. Um, but yeah, it's it's really a, an up and down and a yin and yang. And, um, and so it, there are some situations where the incumbents aren't doing a good job and somebody new coming in could be really good. And then there's situations where the incumbents care deeply about the company and are trying really hard to do a good job. And somebody comes in and tries to make short-term decisions for short-term profit. So it's not, it's what I'm trying to say is it's not black or white. It's completely gray and it completely depends on who the owners are. But the end of the day, the point, and this only illustrates it is that shareholders literally own the company. Yep, and here's the thing. Some companies are solving this problem um, by having two classes of stock. Yeah, that's true. So you might want to be aware. That's so, I find that fascinating. I know we've talked about this before briefly, but this would be a great side note to our buyback conversation. Yeah, definitely. And just just to wrap that, it's the two sh- the two classes of stock. One would be voting shares, and the other is unvoting shares. They don't vote at all. And um, those who own the voting shares control the company, and those are typically the founders of the business who who put well, that together. It's not voting and non voting. I mean, they could set it up that way, but usually it's like one share gives you ten votes versus well, yeah, one okay. share gives you one That's vote. So it's it it's just that they have so many more votes by having different yep. classes of shares. And they can control the company. Yeah. That means they can control the board. Right. And that means they can pay themselves what they want. And they don't have to deal with this distraction of a bunch of activist investors who are thinking they're not running things well. And one of the companies that's working through that right now is Under Armour. Oh, um, having, what's going on with Under Armour? Uh, they're, they're just having a terrible time um, with their company's sales. And as a result, uh, the... The CEO is being attacked by activist investors, and they wanted to change the kind of stock structure. So oh, they really? Vote and, yeah, so that's happening just, right now with them. Well, over the last year or two, yeah, it's been yeah. involved in that. And, you know, it's just, this is an ongoing problem where people sell off parts of their company to other owners. It's just like you own a bar, and you decide, you know, you'd like to get some money out of it, or, you, you know, you want to go build a nice house, so you sell off half your bar to somebody. Well, dang, man, they have a say now. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to sell it to them. Mm-hmm. And they now have a say. And, you know, that's that's a decision you make. By the way, a lot of companies are deciding not to go public yeah, for that reason. Very true. We have about 
I think the number is we have about half the companies that are public now that we had 30 years ago. Um, private equity has gotten a huge pile of money from, from venture capitalists and hedge funds, and they just keep these companies private. And, uh, you know, when they take them public, they're basically just selling them off. So anyway, yeah, being back public, to buybacks, which is... Well, being public, I mean, maybe that's part of the buyback thing because uh, being public just has a whole host of responsibilities and obligations and um, sort of messes. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> not the least of which is because up. you're public, you have to tell all of your shareholders publicly everything about your company, Yeah, which means you got to put out the dirty laundry. Yeah. You've got to put out all your marketing. You got to put out who your competitors are. And you got to do that I mean, every quarter. And you have to do it every quarter. I mean, it's the obligations of a public company are are just huge and maybe a little bit over the top. But I, I get it why they're that way, because why? The, the public owns the company now. And so you have to communicate with your owners. And so to do it in a coherent way, the SEC said, okay, well, you're going to follow these forms called, you know, 10K, which is the annual report, and 10Qs, which are the quarterly report, so that the people who own your business are kept up to, to speed. And then what CEOs would do is hide information. They wouldn't say what, it, what the truth was. Mm-hmm. So then the SEC stepped in and said, okay, well, now you're going to tell the truth and you're going to sign on it that if it isn't the truth and all the truth and nothing but the truth, you're going to go to jail. And, and so they really put some teeth into it to get the information to the owners. Right. Because when a company is public, that means anybody can buy part of that company or the entire thing. Anybody. It can be, you know, a stay-at-home mom who doesn't know anything about this company it could be a stay-at-home mom who's a super expert on that company. It could be a very sophisticated investor. Phil Town could be buying part of that company. Or it could be somebody who sort of does this for fun in their free time on the weekend. Like, it could be absolutely anybody buying part of that company and there's no restrictions. Whereas in a private offering, in a private sale of ownership, there are restrictions on who private companies can offer ownership to. And the reason for that is the informational asymmetry. So with public companies, they're trying to make sure that we, the public, who are not qualified investors, who are not accredited investors, have enough information to make an educated decision about what's happening in that company. And this is a real onerous and difficult thing for a company to do. Mm-hmm. You have... Uh, and I, I think, honestly, Danielle, we may be watching the slow death of the idea of public companies. We may be watching them Why? just disappear. Why? Um, like I said, 30 years ago, there was twice as many of them. They're, 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 they're fewer and fewer companies are going public. Now, so let's think about why does a company go public in the first place? Mm-hmm. To get capital mm-hmm. to go out and expand more quickly so that it can prevent competition from taking from getting a foothold. So if you can really get a, co- a hold of your whole market quickly, then the competitors can't grow that fast and they don't, they die on the vine. Yeah. The reason to go so public w- is to raise money. That's the right. reason. And the second reason is to give the um, investors in this company an opportunity to cash That's out. That's right. So it's easier to cash out with public stock after a while. So these are the main reasons people go public. Now, the disadvantages are just what we've been talking about. They're major disadvantages. 
And now today, the belief is that really to be an investor, you should just buy index funds. You shouldn't try to pick individual stocks or even invest with people who do try to pick individual stocks like mutual funds. You shouldn't do that. You should just buy the index. And I can see a day down the road in 30 or 40, 50 years where none of the good companies are public and an index gets created on private companies where every year they are evaluated by a team of experts looking at you know what they think the real value of the business is not what the market will pay for them right hmm. but what they just anticipate the market would pay and that index goes up and down with those estimates plain and simple that's an interesting idea i'm really intrigued by that yeah and then nobody goes public nobody because there's plenty of capital out there privately in fact there's 10 times more money got put into private equity last year than did in initial public offerings. So the money's heavily now toward private. Uh, companies don't want to be public. There's no company that wants to be public. I mean, it's just a pain in the rear end yeah. to follow all the regulations and expose yourself like that. For sure. But I'm not convinced that there's so much money privately that companies would just stop going public. I don't think that's right. There's a lot of money out there privately, a lot more than there used to be, but nowhere oh, near compared to what you can huge. raise in the public markets. No, the, 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 okay, well, not compared to the public markets. The public markets are about 28 to $30 trillion, and so there isn't that much out there, agreed, but there could be. In other words, if, you know, 85, like roughly 80, 85% of the money invested in the public stock markets, $28 trillion, is individual money from people like just ordinary people, right? They have a pension fund, a 401k, right. IRA. They buy insurance and the insurance companies put that float into the market. They put your money in a bank account. They put that float into the market. So all of that money is is mostly coming from little guys. So why would a little guy want to be in the market? And the answer is just to get a better return than you can get with bonds. Yeah. And if you're investing in indexes anyway... Why not a private equity index? What the heck? You still get to benefit from the growth of America? Right. So, I mean, it's essentially what you're, essentially it's creating another public index. If if well, anybody if anybody without being qualified in any way can buy into it, that's essentially in practice another public index. Yeah, but none of these sure it's a public index, but none of these companies are having to reveal anything. Well, they would have to or else they would have... No, yeah, they would have they? to open themselves up to whoever the inspectors are from that private index. They would have to. Right, but they, but presumably they wouldn't have to open themselves up to their competitors. So there would be regulators who know that industry and evaluate the value of that business for the purpose of the index, and that's and it. And you can you just so easily it. imagine the corruption, the problems, the shoddy workmanship that come out of having one organization be the one who goes in and gives thumbs up or thumbs down. Oh, it would I mean, be a disaster. It, it, I don't think actually, it would work I think in practice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, mean unless, as I was saying, unless it really does in a way become a public index and the SEC or somebody better than the SEC, because they don't do an amazing job, regulated it and and verified the stuff that was coming out of it. But I think it's a really I, intriguing idea, an index of large private companies. 
Super intriguing. Yeah, I, I, that's going to take hold. You're going to watch that take hold, I think, over the I next think five it could. years. I see people yeah. wanting to well, be Well, there's in that already index. secondary markets for private companies. I mean, that's been around for 10 years, 20 years. So it's already happening, but it, you have to be a qualified investor to be part of them. And, and what that means is, so a secondary market is when there's a private company, typically you see this in tech companies and high growth companies that are VC backed and uh, they're private, but people are investing in them and, uh, and they're, they're just pure investors. They're not really involved in the company. And so they may want to sell their ownership before the company goes public, before there's what we would call a liquidity event that allows lots of investors to sell. And so what's come out of that is secondary markets, which means that me as a private investor, I own part of Startup XYZ, and I could say on this, it's usually online these days, I can just say I own, uh, you know, 200 shares of XYZ Startup, and does anybody want it? And then if they're qualified, they can just come in and buy it, and it's a private transaction, but it's facilitated by the secondary market. I think I just realized why... This won't happen <laughs> Tell me. quite the way I just thought it might. And that is going back to the last time we were talking about a friend of mine who's a CEO who very aggressively objected to the idea that shareholders are owners, mm -hmm. okay? Um, because she wants to maintain control of her company, doesn't want to give over control to somebody, particularly a bunch of people she that don't even know what she's doing. And um, it just occurred to me that her worst nightmare would be to be private. Why is that? Because the people who put up the money are not 100,000 anonymous investors who teach high school. They are professional investors who are going to look... First off, there's not going to be very many of them. There's going to be 10. And they're going to look down your throat every Oh, you're saying if it was private. Day. Yeah, they're private. Wait a second. In, in other I'm words, confused. if she raised the capital to have this business... Uh, to expand, and she did it privately, uh -huh. then instead of being, you know, dealing with 100,000 anonymous investors that she can push around yeah. because they don't know anything, she's dealing with 10 investors who are professionals. She cannot push them yes. around. They will fire her in a heartbeat yes. if she's not doing what they want her yes. to do. She becomes their uh, they're slaves. Yeah, I mean, that's a great hey, point. I say jump. You, you know, I mean, you there's a reason founders are terrified of VCs because the VCs will come in and fire them if they're terrible at running that company, which many of them exactly. tend to be. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if that CEO were dealing with ten venture capitalists or mezzanine finance yep. or PE or funds, it would scare her because if she didn't toe the line. She's gone, and she knows that sh they would fire her, no question about it. Whereas her little board of of cronies, they're not going to fire her. They're her buddies. I mean, she's she's made them her friends. Mm -hmm. they, she, they're getting paid because of mm -hmm. her. She can go out and do what she wants. Uh, I'm not saying, this is not a value judgment. I don't know which way is better in terms of the overall outcome of the company. If she's a great CEO, you know, having full control is great. You know, great. And if she's a bad CEO, you know, that would be terrible. Yeah. So it's just depending on how good she is as a CEO. In fact, in this case, she's a tremendous CEO. She's really, really good. And, I, and she knows she's good. And so she wants to keep doing what she's doing. But man, 
going private, that would be a bad idea. So no, public markets aren't going away. There's too many CEOs that want to maintain control. And the way to do it is to have a bunch of owners who are stupid, don't know anything, and there's <laughs> thousands of them. Okay, beyond that particular hyperbole, I think you made a really good point that being private, I mean, you just said a lot of stuff about how being public is so onerous, and that's all completely true. But being private is also very hard. And it's um, it's hard for people to sell their shares. It's hard to create more shares. It's hard to get new investors. It's very expensive to do all of this. Very expensive. And you're stuck with who you've got. So boards on private companies often have a lot of issues and infighting and people want to get out and so can't. True. And so Yeah. True. So it, it's basically, again, it's gray. Like it's not black or white. It both can be really good for a company and both can be difficult for a company. And, and by the way, what you're learning here on this podcast is how to invest. And, in, and, and I want to make this point, honey, investing has nothing to do with public or private. Mm. Investing is just investing. And it doesn't matter whether the business is private, whether the business is real estate, whether the business is farming, whether the business is bubblegum machines, whether the business is public stock and IBM, it doesn't matter. Our judgment about whether that's a good business is based on the same key four principles. We use them all the time, public, private. I mean, just to make that point, Warren Buffett at Berkshire probably owns, I don't know, 70, 75 private yeah. companies. Yeah. And, you know, far fewer public ones. So... It's, it's good information. Whatever this market does doesn't really matter to the investor. It matters a lot to the speculator, but it doesn't matter to the investor. A market that's going down because fewer people are going public is a great opportunity for us to own really great businesses really cheap. And if we're going to go into the private marketplace to buy them, you're going to have the tools to do that from listening to this podcast. True. I like it. Cool. All right. Well, so- next time we'll talk about buybacks. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> You never know when buybacks could come up. (laughs) That's right. I I think really next time we're going to do it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.